So what you're about to listen to is my interview with Dr. Layton Flowers, who runs the YouTube channel called Soteriology 101. Layton has become known in recent years as one of the leading forefront non-Calvinist voices and providing resources, videos, articles, all sorts of different content that helps people to see that there are legitimate, solid, alternative biblical views to Calvinism. And I think alternative, saying alternative gives the sense that it's not as good, but it is at least one way to go. And I would say that's inaccurate. I think there's not just alternative views in the sense that Calvinism is the best one and there's other lesser ones out there, but I think there are just better views than Calvinism. Calvinism is often presented as the best view, the, the really the only way to understand how God's sovereignty works as described in the Bible. I think there are better ways to understand God's sovereignty. So in this conversation, we just talk a lot about some of the ultimate implications of Calvinism and really the moral dilemma that Calvinistic soteriology creates in terms of God's goodness, his love, and his ultimate character. If you want to follow Leighton Flowers, I will link to his stuff in the show notes of this episode so you can go follow him on YouTube and his podcast and all of that as well. If you haven't yet, would you leave a five-star review on this podcast? That is, if you enjoy it and think it's worthy of a five-star review. But I know that positive reviews really help to push the podcast out to more people. And so if you do enjoy this podcast, it would be a great help to me if you could take a moment and just leave a positive review. Just so you know, this is part one of what will be a two-part conversation with Leighton. In the next part, which I will release in the coming weeks, we talk about issues of regeneration preceding faith, whether faith is a work or not, and touch on things like Ephesians 1. And so if you enjoy part one, then make sure to be looking for part two, which will be coming out in both podcast and video version on the YouTube channel. No, I'm, I'm sorry. If you redefine the word love to, to ultimately mean hate, I'm going to call you out on it. I'm going to have to say, brothers, you, you've misstepped here. You at least be the consistent kind of Calvinist that A.W. Pink is and just come right out and call it hate because that's what you're describing when, with regard to what God does to the reprobates on the Calvinistic system. So today I'm talking with Dr. Layton Flowers, and if you're not familiar with Layton, he runs the podcast and YouTube channel called Soteriology 101. He also has a website where there's a, a pretty big catalog of videos and articles and different audio resources available. And so on this platform, Soteriology 101, Lane has become known as one of the leading non-Calvinist voices out there. Don't reject Christianity on the basis that God causally determines all things that come to pass. It is not the only serious way to interpret the Bible. It is it's just not. Critiquing Calvinism, offering counter arguments, and then presenting with, you know, many of these difficult texts that are often used to support Calvinism, such as Romans 9 or Ephesians 1 and so on. He offers non-Calvinist ways of looking at these and understanding these different texts. And so if you want to check out Layton's stuff, I will link to his his YouTube website and all that in the description of this video. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to this discussion and I hope you enjoy it. 
Well, hello, Leighton, and thank you so much for coming on today. Hey, it's my pleasure, Jordan. Thanks for having me. So for those who might not be super familiar with what you do with Soteriology 101, could you explain just like a quick overview of what you do on the channel and podcast and then kind of what your motivation and vision is behind doing what you do there? Sure. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I didn't really start the, the broadcast to become what it's become. It kind of happened over a series of circumstances. I had I was teaching as a professor in Dallas while I was doing my, my doctoral work at New Orleans. And uh, I was teaching just a survey theology survey course, and we came on, you know, came across sociology. And I started unpacking some of the things I was writing about with re regard to the rise of Calvinism and, you know, my form being a former Calvinist and leaving Calvinism. And I was kind of telling them some of the different views. Here's what Calvinists typically believe. Here's what other other views hold to. And it just like it lit a fire under the students. And they really got really interested in asking a lot of questions. And it was one of those um, webinar courses where it was, you know, a dual class where they were in sometimes and, and watched online other times. And and so I said, guys, we've got to move on. We can't stay on this topic. And so um, I said, I'll record some more information on the webinar. And if you're interested, you can watch it. And almost every single one of the students, you know, had watched it because you can tell as a professor the view count of who watches. But the comment section was like 10 times longer than any of the other comments on any of the other videos and any of the other topics. And so it was obviously just a hot button issue. And even one of the students mentioned, you know, hey, you should take what you did on that webinar and put it onto a, a podcast. And I was like, well, what's that? You know, how do you back in, right. back in the day? I, I wasn't really into podcasting. I didn't know anything about it. And just one thing led to another. And that's kind of why it's named Sociology 101 is because that was the name of the, the course I was teaching on when we were, were uh, talking on that subject. And uh, and then it, it's kind of developed into what it is. It started as just an audio, you know, broadcast on iTunes, and then eventually somebody started pushing me to to go to YouTube, and one thing led to another, and eventually it's kind of become what it what it is now. Yeah. Well, I am very glad that it that it has become what it is. Um, I I know you know this, but I just think it's it's so very important. I've seen the potential harmful effects that can come, um, uh, that can arise if somebody really, I think, internalizes and embraces some of the ultimate implications of the system. Um, and I'm hoping here, here later, we can maybe kind of lay out what some of those ultimate implications are. Um, but I just think that right now, obviously, you're doing a lot to, to just let people know that, hey, there are other biblical ways to think about this. And that I think that's probably one of my biggest driving forces why i as a, a very small channel i'm trying to do whatever i can just my little part to put out videos to uh, because you know as you always say and what i say is that the most prominent popular pastors at least of this modern era in christianity are are you know asserting an idea that calvinism is 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 the option you either go with calvinism or you kind of you're not going to be able to be biblical um, so that's just a long-winded way of saying thank you for for letting people know that no, there are other options out there. Yeah, and I, and I think that's um, really the main gist of what I'm I'm trying to do is I, I notice kind of a vacuum for the most part on on YouTube and just in social media. You know, it's just it, it, Arminians. Um, you know, I, I'm not I don't claim to be an Arminian, but I, I probably share more in common with Arminianism than I do with Calvinism, obviously. Um, but right. Arminians, you, I mean, they just haven't done near as, as as good as the Calvinists have done 
at getting their word out. Um, they just, uh, God bless them. I mean, there's a lot of good, you know, Armenians that I have a lot of love and respect for, but they're not online for the most part. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, and Calvinists have done a really, really good job of getting online and getting their materials out there. Um, and there are new broadcasts. And, you know, somebody was joking with me the other day about, don't don't you think you're going to run out of material? <laughs> if you only knew the list in my email box of ideas for Sociology 101 and videos that I could reply to because the Calvinists yeah. are literally putting out, you know, churning out videos and yeah, curriculum and materials. Yeah, there's, I, I, yeah, I could do 16 broadcasts uh, a week on this and still have more material that I could go over and, and look yes. to. And so it's just it's 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 the, the Calvinists are prolific in their publications of their materials. And and I am just a small little drop in the ocean uh, of of all that's out there. Uh, I get ridiculed sometimes, I guess, because I have a broadcast that's dedicated to that subject. It's not right. that that's the only thing I do. Obviously, I only spend a few hours a week on Sociology 101. Um, you know, I have wife i have four children i have you know a full-time job with uh, the texas baptist as the director of evangelism and apologetics i, I also teach as a, a professor of theology for trinity seminary and so um my wife laughed because she heard that i was being called a one-string banjo as if that's the only string i've ever you know played or ever <laughs> do play and she kind of jokes and i wish you only had one string because the yeah. you know the criticism is that sometimes i sometimes i take on too much and so, um, you know, I, I mentioned that because you can get the perception if you watch a particular channel that, hey, oh, this is the only thing this guy cares about, the only thing this guy talks about. And know that, that we just we've I've compartmentalized this issue because it's an in-house debate. I don't want it to overwhelm the other subjects of evangelism and apologetics that I do over here in this world. That's why I created a separate page for it. And so what some people perceive as a one string banjo, this is the only thing this guy ever does is actually my effort to keep it in the right place and not right. to allow it to become a distraction to what I consider the more important matters and disciplines of the Christian faith. I, I can very much relate to that and in a different arena uh, because on my channel what i've been doing a lot of for the past five years is focusing on a very specific uh south korean originated uh fringe or cult group um and so i get i i've been getting that same accusation for the last five years of why why is this all you talk about why are you devoting an entire channel to talking about this one group you know just leave them alone you're just being yeah. you're yeah. just being divisive why don't you talk about and it's yeah. just the idea that hey look does th what this comes down to is is this a big enough significant issue to to like legitimately uh, warrant having conversations about or is it not right. and the fact that with with calvinism Again, it is being pushed by the most popular, the ones with the loudest microphone as the only biblical option. It, it, it not only warrants one channel like Soteriology 101, but, but many channels devoted, I think, to that. And so well, um, and the, the Calvinists have, you know, ReformTheology.com and Monergism.com and CalvinistCorner.com. And I mean, it, it's not like they're not doing it, um, you know, and, and usually Calvinists aren't criticizing their own for the materials that they produce that are, you know, particularly about Calvinistic theology. Um, and so the, 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 sometimes it's just a double standard. Um, plus, you know, the Internet usually uh, is is kind of geared for having categories or pages dedicated to a certain thing. And so it wouldn't make right. any sense, for example, and I use this example, you know, with a friend of mine. I said, you you know, you don't go to the 
Dallas Cowboys Twitter page and criticize them for talking about the Dallas Cowboys or football <laughs> because they created that page for that. Does that mean everybody who contributes to that page, that's all they ever do? They only right. talk about football 24-7? Yeah. You know, no, of course not. Yeah. They dedicated that page for that issue and for that that you know fan base. Um, and, and so you would expect them to talk about that. But if that's yeah. all you know of the person, if that's all you ever see, then you just get this perception. Well, this, this is the only thing this guy ever does, ever talks about. And the truth of the matter is, yeah. I, I mentioned Calvinism in my life about as, as much as, as you hear me if you're, you happen to listen to the program, because I, I just don't talk about this topic all that much in my day-to-day life unless I'm you know broadcasting or doing something, yeah. uh, answering you know a, a new Calvinistic video or sermon or you know material that's come out just recently that I want to try to respond to. Yeah. I don't know, but I would assume a lot of the times that sort of complaint is maybe being leveled from the other side of the fence. Uh, and and it, it, would that is that accurate? Is it is it mostly? Do you think non-Calvin or Calvinist, or is it yeah, kind of both is, sides yeah, that are complaining? Some Calvinists, yeah. But I, I've even I've even had complaints, or, or people get the impression um, that even who believe like I do. Um, maybe traditional yeah. kind of Southern Baptist person believe like I do, but that's I've become known for this particular thing on the internet, and they're thinking, okay, you're you're just keep bringing this up, so you're making you're making it a dividing point, and so let's yeah. just not talk about it. And and the the thing is, and what I try to help these people understand is that Calvinism um, is not that may, maybe that important of an issue to you until it affects you. Um, yeah, for right. for a lot of people who have not had a Calvinism rise up in their church or their their family member hasn't become a Calvinist and therefore there's a division taking place, a lot of them, they see this as kind of like, a, you know, how many angels can dance on the head of a pen? Okay, you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah. It's not that right. big of a deal. It's just yeah. a, kind of a, a small little minor difference that some Christians have. And so let's just stop talking about it and let's just get along. And, and I understand that sentiment. If if you hadn't been through a church split like my home church was, I I was a Calvinist who helped to split my home church with my parents in it, um, you know, and and the the my my beloved pastor that helped yeah, I grew up under his teaching, and he was not a Calvinist, and we split over. The, if if you had gone through something like that, you you would see this issue probably in a different light than maybe you do. If you're just seeing it as just some side thing that some people believe over here and other people disagree. Or if you talk to one of the many churches that call in because I work for you know a denomination for Texas Baptist, and so churches, especially in Texas, they'll call and be like, "We just got a pastor who's teaching Calvinism for the first time in our church, and this church you know typically runs like 250, and now it's down to 80, um, and and there's you know we're losing our church and and this splitting over this issue. What what do we do? How do we you know, then all of a sudden Calvinism is going to become a really important topic to you. And you're going to start asking, okay, how do I defend what I believe about this? Um, or, or you're going to become a Calvinist, one of the two. Um, and so th- then it becomes an important issue. And so, yeah, it's, it's not an important issue until it becomes one. And then, then, then you're going to need something like Sociology 101. You're going to need this resource. Yeah. Just like you don't need, uh, you know, an instruction manual on how to fix a um, a muffler until your muffler breaks, you know? <laughs> so yeah, yeah. That, that's why yeah. it's created for that purpose. It's very particular and it's maybe a niche topic. Mm-hmm. Yes. Here's where you go to deal with Calvinism from a non-Calvinistic yeah. traditional Southern Baptist provisionist viewpoint. And here's a resource for you if you want it. Yes, exactly. And it's, it's, 
when you when you experience like you're saying the church splits or um as i have even even in some personal ways experience the impact that this theology can have and and i'm not saying that the fact that some people struggle emotionally or it causes you know mental um repercussions emotional repercussions which it does in many cases i'm not saying that proves anything that doesn't prove that it's true or false um, but but I think the point is that that I I think people need to understand again is this is not an issue of you know how many angels can dance on the head of a ball pin this is something that impacts people in real life um, theology impacts people how you how you uh, well it, it's a uh, um, A W Tozer I can't remember the quote exactly but he says something to the extent of like the most important thing thing about you is is what you think when you think about God, what comes into your mind when you think about God. And so I know it's a very, you know, um, it, again, it's, it doesn't prove the truthfulness or falseness of Calvinism if somebody struggles with it mentally or emotionally. But, but if you step back and think, okay, well, what if this isn't true? What if this isn't true? Isn't it worth having somebody devote a lot of time and energy to explaining uh, biblical reasoning for 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 why that might be and other alternative ways um, of looking at these passages. So, um, yeah, I even had a Calvinist friend. I won't mention his name because I didn't get his permission to to quote him on this. But uh, having a discussion with him about this, and and I just kind of said, you know, hey brother, if if you came to firmly believe, let's just say like an angel came down before us right now and said, hey bro, okay, Calvinism isn't true. Layton's right on this, and you just knew it with. Uh, epistemic certainty, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, w do you think what I'm doing is therefore as bad as you're suggesting? Because he was kind of criticizing for me what I was doing on the broadcast and stuff. I said, now, if you knew that for sure, would would you? And he actually stopped and he thinks for a second. And, and to his credit, he goes, you know what? Yeah, I mean, if, if I found out what I was teaching was wrong, then standing up against that is actually a pretty noble thing. I said, there you go. So, I mean, yeah. I know you don't agree with me. I know you think I'm wrong, but consider maybe maybe I'm right. And if I am right, then what I'm doing is actually a noble thing. It's actually a good thing mm -hmm. correcting people from a false view of who God is, a false view of salvation, a false view of how salvation works. Um, though well-intending, and I think that you really believe and trust in Christ, and I think that you know Calvinists can be Christians. I don't think I lost my my. Christianity when I became a Calvinist for a decade, right. um, and so I'm not. I'm not trying to say that it's a salvific issue in the sense that just because you're a Calvinist, you cannot be saved. Um, but what I'm saying is that the impact of it can affect people uh, emotionally, uh, spiritually, can lead people down a path, and if nothing else, can cause a lot of controversy as evidenced, um, you know, through church splits and so many other things that have come over of this topic. Um, and so, especially if if true consistent Calvinism, which is a form of theistic determinism, is true, then I have to point out to Calvinists, not to be mean or to, you know, to be overly bombastic with them by any means, but just to yeah. say, either I'm right about this and determinism isn't true, or God has determined me to, to believe this. Because if right. determinism is true, then it's by necessity entails that I have been determined to believe that determinism is not true. And you have yeah. to live with the irrationality of that claim, and you have to deal with it. And sometimes when I push Calvinists to deal with the irrationality of even that claim, a lot of them will, will 
lash out at me or call me names yeah. or attack me personally or yeah. tell me I don't understand Calvinism, you know, all these kinds of things. I'm just like, guys, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to be mean to you. I'm not, I'm not saying this in a mean way. It's not about you personally. I'm just put, I'm pointing out to you what I see as irrational about the claims of your systematic. And, and I'm hoping by doing so that you will also see the irrationality of your claims and then maybe test them uh, with the exegesis that we're bringing to bear with regard to the proof text that you're offering. Yeah. So I, I, I meant to get right into your story and it's so hard to not just keep going with some of these, <laughs> these things, but sure. yeah. what, what, what you're explaining right there is a, a description of what my last two weeks have been, uh, <laughs> as I've been posting videos. And, and it's something that I, I, I'm, I'm trying to step back and figure out what, what's going on here. Because as you're saying, when, when you say something like, Hey, if if your position is actually true, when you complain about me critiquing it and attempting to refute it, you're complaining against God's sovereign, you know, purpose for my life. He has sovereignly determined that I would refute Calvinism. And so when we, you know, I found that same thing that when I simply, I'm not, like you're saying, I'm not trying to just jab or 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 be disrespectful. I'm just I'm looking at the ultimate implications of if you logically, rationally, you know, make these, uh, uh, you follow it through. That that's just that's your system. And so, um, and what I found, just as you're saying, and, and I don't know exactly why it is that when you do kind of just simply put forward what are the ultimate implications of the system. This is your system. This is what you believe right. that I'm determined by God to refute the thing you believe in. Why, I guess the question that, I, um, that I'm wondering, and, and if you have any thought on, is why it does it seem like so often the response is anger and lashing out? And, and, and then, of course, the, hey, you just don't understand Calvinism, because that's the exact, that seems like every time I put forward the ultimate implications, uh, yeah. doing so as best as I can in a respectful way, it does not result in somebody trying to thoughtfully, you know, meaningfully offer a, a right. good solution or to say, hey, like that question makes sense. Like, I understand yeah. why you'd <laughs> ask that question. Like, why not? That seems right. like a very reasonable way reasonable to respond, way, to say yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. Well, it's the it's the whole, you know, that that catchphrase, me dost think thou protest too much. Um, you know, yeah. that that saying, you know, from a play, a Shakespeare or something where it's it's basically saying you seem very defensive here. Um, and the reason that sometimes anger comes up, I know, you know, having four kids, uh, even, you know, just human nature. My wife is a counselor, so she knows these things when someone lashes out at you. Um, when you bring something up, it's probably because they're very defensive about that thing. Um, and it, it usually reveals that there, there's a, you, you've touched a sore spot, so to speak. An insecurity. Yeah, an insecurity because they, they, they know that that's a weakness of their system. And when mm -hmm. you press on the weakness of that system, you're pressing on the sore spot. Well, you know, if a dog yeah. has a sore spot and you press on it, what are they going to do? They're going to yelp and bite at you. Um, and that's yeah. exactly what you're seeing oftentimes, in my opinion, from some Calvinists. Now, now I think some Calvinists who have done their homework on this issue and have even written in, in response to this w rationally, they, what they have, they, they typically do is just own up to it. Right. Um, exactly. I, I think of Gim Yong, uh, Bing Yong, uh, mm -hmm. Guillaume Bing Yong. I, I always uh -huh. mispronounce this and I'm trying to get it right. Uh, <laughs> uh, he's, I know he's a very, about. 
Yeah, he's a, he's a he's a theistic determinist, Calvinist. I mean, he is consistent and he is a good thinker. The two main arguments against uh, determinism, the, against compatibilism, the main, the most famous ones are the fact that if we are determined, God cannot blame us or praise us for what we do. Mm. Right? That's the compatibilist debate. Yeah. And the second is that if he determines what we do, that includes our sin and therefore that makes him inappropriately involved in evil. And what I point out is that those two main objections against Calvinism are the two very objections that are anticipated by Paul in Romans 9. And so he's not the kind of guy that runs from the argument or lashes back like James White does with me and things like that. Well, I do whatever I was determined to do. Leighton, honestly, I think some people think that every time that Leighton Flowers does the, well, you know, I've been determined to not understand these things, that he's just trying to be funny? No, that is how he thinks. James White tends to react like like I was talking about, very defensively and gets mad and, and lashes yes. out. Ben right. Young doesn't do that. Ben Young just says, no, you're right, Leighton. You were determined to deny determinism because determinism is determinism. I mean, God yeah. determines whatsoever comes That's, to pass. Yeah. And then he goes on to, to, to answer that from a theistic determinist position by ultimately appealing to the mystery of it. Um, he he yes. does what John Calvin does, um, where John Calvin comes right out and says, I've meditated on these things so long as how people are not implicated, as how, how God is not implicated as the, the fault and the, the cause of transgression. Um, but yet he's the one who determines all things. I, I, he says, and I'm paraphrasing, but he says, I've, I've meditated on this so long. I, 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 I'm not afraid to confess ignorance, he says. In other words, he's, he's being intellectually honest enough just to go, this is the mystery of Calvinism. It's the mystery of determinism, that God determines what you're going to think and feel and do by your nature because he, he determines whatsoever comes to pass. But yet, mysteriously, you're still held culpable for those things. You're still going to be held responsible justly somehow. We don't know exactly how it's just and it's right, but it is because the Bible says so. And you just have to live with that. You just need to, to deal with it. Um, and, and that's the way I think a rational Calvinist or a consistent Calvinist deals with it. I don't think it removes the irrationality of it. I think it's like saying A is true and not A is true. It's a, it's a married bachelor. To me, that's, I, that's what I hear. I hear he's claiming it's a married bachelor and you just need to accept the, the paradox or the atenomy or the contra, seeming contradiction of these two things. Right. And, and if you're not willing to do that, then you just can't see the emperor's clothes, so to speak. You, you're just not maybe wise enough. Maybe you're not mature enough. Maybe you're just not willing to submit yourself to the authority of God's word. Um, you're too emotional, what, whatever it is. I mean, there's always yeah. some reason. It can't be, at least for them sometimes, it can't be, well, no, I, I reasoned these things out. <laughs> and I looked at the scriptures and I have uh, compared the exegesis of non-Calvinist with the best Calvinist and scholarships. And, I, and I've held them side by side and I found the Calvinistic side wanting. Um, I was not convinced by the Calvinistic interpretation of these verses, but I was convinced by these other interpretations. Um, and, and that's why I've decided that I, I don't believe Calvinism is true. And it has nothing yeah. to do with how emotional I am or how, you know, uh, you don't, have, you know, appeal to the authority of Scripture, or you know, all the nefarious reasons that you can possibly yes, come up right. with as to why I might re reject Calvinism. It it might actually be because I, I've reasoned these things out and come to a different decision. And it certainly doesn't make much sense to say that God determines for some of His children to believe false doctrines. 
Um, yeah. That just that just does not seem like a tenable or rational way of thinking about God or how He works with His with His people. Yeah, you referring to the gentleman that I'm not even going to try to repeat his name, but <laughs> I, I, I think that that to me is is just so much more of a compelling response. Uh, to just again to own it, it just it. I think there's a a, a measure of integrity and just honesty and uh, just the way of just you know not not trying to somehow almost in a sense gaslight you for even asking the question about their system, which seems to so often be the case. But right. just own it, and then and then if nothing else, you know, appeal to mystery. Like I think that's that's a better response than to just kind of try to wiggle out of, of even acknowledging that that is in fact a part of, of their system. And we have Um, mysteries. I mean, every, every, every system has a a mystery. I mean, the Bible, the question is what mysteries do the Bible, does the Bible afford? Um, I think the mystery of omniscience is a mystery that I, I've not fully comprehended. I, I don't just like, I don't know how God creates something from nothing. I have no idea how he does that. That's a mystery. I can't, I can't even fathom how you, bring something out from nothing it doesn't speak and it's just is that isn't how do you, that doesn't yeah. that, i don't i can't my brain cannot comprehend that um i i also don't know how you know something that hasn't happened yet i i don't know how he knows what i'm going to eat tomorrow i have because i don't even know for sure what i'm going to eat tomorrow I, I don't know how he knows that i don't know how he knew peter would deny him three times before the rooster crows i don't know how he knew things that would happen before they happened i I cannot fathom that. I believe it's true because the Bible says it's true, but I, I can't fathom how it's true. Now, the Calvinist will answer that question. Well, the reason God knows it's going to happen is because he's determined it to happen by divine decree. And he brings it about through a variety of means, uh, you know, in causal circumstances and whatever, you know, ways that they want to d- describe the metaphysics of that. But um, th- that's, how, that's how they explain omniscience. And I don't explain omniscience that way. I don't think God knows something because he's determined it to happen. I think he knows it because he's God. He's omnipresent. He's at all places at all times. He is all-knowing because of his nature as God, not as because he's determined what will happen. And so my view of omniscience is that God knows it because he's God, whereas Calvinists think God knows it because he determined it. He he brings it to pass, like almost like a script, like he's written it out. And now he knows it's going to play itself out the way he's written it because he wrote it. And I, I don't think that that aligns with what I read revealed in Scripture. Um, and so I reject that philosophical explanation as to how omniscience works. Um, now, there's other you know, philosophical explanations with Molinism, for example, the, some of the dynamic open views of God's knowledge and how it works within time and space have different explanations to how all those things work. All of them are speculative. Um, some better align, I think, with the Revelation Scripture than others for obvious reasons that we discuss on our broadcast. But, you know, all of us do have mysteries. And so I, I think it's just yeah. wise for us to come right out and say, yeah, well, there are mysteries within our perspective, too. But I, I think our mysteries better align with the Revelation of Scripture than than what our, you know, deterministic friends have, have concluded. Right. So what I'd like to do is... If you could, for those, you know, we talked about a little bit um, already, but for those who who probably many people who follow my channel will not know 
what Calvinism even is or might have vague ideas. So if, if, if you could kind of summarize, you know, obviously we can't go into full detail, but just give a general picture of, of what, yeah. you know, if, if one was to embrace Calvinism, what, what does that mean for them? What does that mean about, about God? What does that mean about salvation? What are sort of the, the ultimate, I guess, conclusions of, of that system? Well, the popular acrostic TULIP has been a way of summarizing the major points of Calvinistic soteriology. Um, now, Calvinists will be quick to tell you there are things beyond TULIP, obviously, that Reformed theologians hold to. But the, these five points get to the points of contention or the, where the debate has been throughout Christian history over these doctrines. And so the T stands for total depravity. Now, now most Christians can sign off on the concept of depravity, meaning everyone has sinned and falls short of the glory of God. We're, we're all morally accountable for our choices and we all go astray. We all miss the mark, so to speak. And if that's all that Calvinists meant by depravity, then we would probably all be in agreement, but that's not all that's meant by depravity. Um, the T is probably better defined as what R.C. Sproul refers to as total moral inability, which is really the Calvinistic concept that you're born in a condition because of the fall where your desires are broken, uh, your wanter is broken, the way R.C. Sproul puts it, um, and therefore you can't want to accept the gospel because of the very nature that you were born with, your fallen nature. And so there needs to be a remedy to that, and that remedy is that God has elected before the foundation of the world unconditionally certain people, and he is going to give them a grace, an irresistible grace, that changes their very ontological nature from being dead to being alive, from, from being someone who rejects God and hates God and doesn't desire to accept the gospel to someone whose very desires change from within and causes them to want God. Um, and that's the, the elect. Those are the ones who will be ultimately saved. And so in, in summary, you're born unable to want to receive the gospel unless God picked you before you were born and changes your nature to make you want him. Um, that is the essence of Calvinism. And that's all levels of Calvinism, by the way, because you often talk, there's a moderate Calvinist or three-point Calvinist or a modified this, that, or the other Calvinist or whatever else. It, the heart of Calvinism and contains those concepts. If you don't affirm those concepts, don't call yourself a Calvinist. You, you have no business calling yourself a Calvinist because that's the crux, even by R.C. Sproul's, MacArthur, uh, Piper, I've listened to all of them, and they've, they've, they've described the crux of the Calvinistic system really hinges on the inability from birth, unless you were unilaterally picked before you were born, and irresistibly or effectually changed to want to believe and trust in him. Yeah. That, that is the essence and the foundational point of Calvinistic doctrine. Now, you can talk about tone, atonement issues and perseverance issues and all those, but those are peripheral uh, kind of outflows of that the mm -hmm. basic uh, core concept of Calvinism. Yeah, I recently saw a, a clip of, I think it was R.C. Sproul, is, is at least somebody attached to Ligonier Ministries who said that, you know, basically you can summarize the the Calvinistic system, the ideas of it, the heart and core of it with the phrase, regeneration precedes faith. Precedes faith. If, it, right. if you get that concept, you basically, you get you get Calvinism. So right. so with, with that, maybe real quick, um, following up with that, spell out what are some of the ultimate implications of that in terms of, you know, I guess just so people get an idea, you know, right up front, again, people who might not know what this is, 
you know, as an example, this this means what what Leighton is saying, what the system ultimately um, concludes is that Jesus didn't die for everybody, correct? That not everybody was atoned for. Um, and so what are some of the more troubling, I guess, ideas that arise out of TULIP? Yeah, and before I even go with the atonement thing, because there are a lot of four-point Calvinists, what are called Amaraldians, um, you know, and, and Bruce Ware, for example, rejects the concept of limited atonement, and he, he affirms the universal extent of the atonement, um, and yet he's, a, he's still a Calvinist. Um, and so he deals with that in a different way. Um, and so you can, you can actually hold to what I just explained as Calvinism without necessarily affirming the concept of limited atonement. In fact, the earliest reformers, um, if you look back to David Allen's writings on the Lombardian formula and everything else, he, he actually gives a, a huge defense of the universal extent of the atonement, even from among reformed theologians. And so that's why I, I put it off to the side as a peripheral kind of secondary issue to the, to the main issue, because even those who affirm a, a universal extent of the atonement don't necessarily, uh, you know, uh, you can believe one way or the other as far as the other, the other issues. But the, 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 the implication of the system is, is theistic determinism. You're, you're born without any meaningful control over your desires and choices under Calvinism. I mean, you're, you're born as a God-hater from birth. I mean, you can't do anything but hate and reject the gospel because of the very nature you were born with. You had nothing to do with that. Um, that that's a result of the fall. God decreed it to be that way. You have no meaningful control over your desires, your choices. Um, uh, and what is the implication of that is that you're not guilty. You're a victim. That, that's the implication of it. That, that's the logical yep. implication of it. It's intuitive. Uh, it would be it would be tantamount in my mind, at least, to judging somebody for the color of their skin or the color of their eyes or their height or something. They have a, absolutely no control over, um, because you have no more or less control over your skin color, your eye color, or any of those other factors than you do over whether you believe the gospel or not on this system, because it's not determined by you. It ha- you have no meaningful control over it, um, and and so you're you're born this way. And that's determined by God the way you're born. Unless he picked you before you were born, unilaterally picked you, and he, it's not based upon anything he knows that will happen or anything like that. It's based you know, solely upon his will and his will alone. And it's secret in the secret counsel of his will, according to Calvinism, until he rebirths you. And you have no, he, no control over who he rebirths and who he doesn't. And so he rebirths you. What's he do when he rebirths you? He makes you into a new creation, new new person. He re, he, he makes you into a, a one who desires him. Um, and that is, again, just as determined as your natural birth. And so your your desires from your natural birth um, are does, de- determined by God, and your desires from your new birth are determined by God. It's just determinism. And so the natural reaction is, okay, then why are men to blame for the rejection of the gospel? They have no control over the rejection of the gospel any more so than they have the color of their skin or the color of their eyes. They, it, it, it's it's like saying, um, let's hold let's hold people accountable for not flapping their arms and being able to fly. They they were born not able to flap their arms and be able to fly. It, it, why why so, would you hold people accountable for that? That doesn't make it doesn't and, make any any rational sense. And sorry to cut you off, but at this point to kind of put on what I think would possible possibly be the Calvinist hat would be to say, but well, Leighton, they are, they're doing what they desire to do. They're not, they're not sinning against their will, the sins that they're committing, it's what they want to do. And therefore they are to blame. So, so how would you respond to something like that? Well, if, if I'm controlling your wants, if, if it was discovered by a, a room full of your peers 
that I had slipped into your, um, you know, your bedroom at night and put nodes into your brain. Again, suppositional argument. You can suppose any weird and wild thing. Okay. I put nodes into your brain where I now control Jordan's choices. And so I control your desires and therefore you go out and you steal from the bank. You, 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 you take a million dollars from the bank because I put that desire in your mind to cause you to want to do that. And we get into a courtroom, your peers surrounding you, and it's demonstrated with video evidence showing me putting this node in the brain, demonstrating how the node works and how this, this, this science works with this thing causing you to desire. Everybody knows in that courtroom that they would find me guilty and you innocent. Why? Because they discovered Leighton is controlling the desires of Jordan. Jordan would not have done that otherwise. Leighton controlled his desires. Therefore, showing that whoever is controlling the desire of the person is the one who is actually responsible for what the person right. does. So it doesn't mean anything to say that people are culpable as long as they do what they desire if their desires are not within their control. So yeah. you, you can do what you want, but you can't want what you want on yeah. Calvinism. On provisionism, however, what we say is that you have a, a multitude of competing desires and inclinations. I may have an inclination to drink because my parents were alcoholics, which, by the way, is not true. I'm just using examples of suppositions. I, I may be, have an inclination to a hot temper because that's what my parents had or something of that nature. You, I can have a lot of inclinations. I can have a lot of tendencies. Does that mean I'm determined to act by those tendencies or those uh, those inclinations? Of course not. People deny their inclinations and their tendencies all the time, their desires all the time. Um, so you're not on our system. You're not controlled by your desire. You are the determiner of which desire you act to fulfill. So I may have the desire to eat a piece of cake because it tastes so good, but I also have the desire to lose weight. Those are two competing desires. A free moral agent has the ability to deliberate between those two desires and to choose one over the other. And thus I'm held culpable for my choice. I'm not an animal just acting instinctively on my greatest preset desire that God decreed for me to have or you know, determined for me to have. That's just animal instinct. That's not choice. It's not moral choice for sure. And so that's what separates us from the Calvinistic view of morality because when we are acting according with our desires, we are choosing which desire we act to fulfill and we could have done otherwise. We could have denied that desire and acted to do the right thing instead of the wrong thing in that given circumstance, thus separating us from the animals and make, making us morally accountable people. And as Romans 2 says, our conscience will, will either accuse or uh, um, defend us in the final day because we're going to be judged based upon what's right or wrong because of the God written the law in our hearts. He, we, we know right from wrong because we are moral beings. We're not cats and dogs and lions and, and uh, cows. You know, a, a cow will eat, if you put a you know, pile of grass in front of a cow and you put a pile of meat in front of a cow, we all know what the cow is going to choose. He's going to choose the pile of grass. Why? Because that's the way God created him. Uh, you put a lion in front of the same choice, what's the lion going to do? He's going to eat the meat. Why? Because that's the way he was created by God. He's acting according to his desires. He's doing what he wants to do. But nobody would call that a moral choice. Nobody goes out there and tortures the cow for making the choice to eat grass or tortures the lion for his choice to eat meat because we all know that's intuitive to who they are, their nature. But yet that's exactly, I've even heard Jeff Durbin, a known Calvinist online, use that yes. as his example for I've why people well. choose yeah, sin uh, and, and choose to reject the gospel. 
That's not a, a basis for morality or a basis for human culpability. That removes their culpability. Suggesting that people you know, don't believe the gospel because they can't believe the gospel gives them a, the best excuse I can imagine for not believing yeah. the gospel. Uh, and that's why that's why we're standing against this so vehemently is that you're removing human responsibility whether you intend to or not now we all know you're saying calvinist yes no 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 people are still responsible but you, you're not making a rational explanation as to why they're still exactly. responsible you just appeal to mystery as to why they're still yeah. held responsible and that's not rational that it doesn't it doesn't give a sufficient basis for us to to defend uh christianity and to explain it as being rational and just and, and even biblical for that matter, as far as I can tell. Yeah, yeah. I would I would see um, three possible responses. There might be more, but the three that would come to mind would be the one that you just said, a response to, again, just to clarify this, is basically the 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 idea is is in the same sense that God created a cat. Let's say a cat will just naturally throughout its span of life meow. And it'll lick its paws and it'll purr when it's when it's comfortable and happy. It's just what cats do. It can't help but right. do those things instinctively. In the same way, uh, the ultimate implications of Calvinism are such that God has decided, he's ordained that the reprobate, those who are not chosen, will have a certain nature uh, in the same way that cat has a certain nature. And they can't they will only be able to act within that nature and 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 engage in, in those, the sinful desires that are a part of that nature. Um, it's what God ordained their will, their desires to be, their nature to be. But at the judgment, God's going to look at them and, and basically say, why didn't you believe in me? Even though he, he was the one who withheld that ability to believe. Why didn't you repent? Although right. he never gave them any ability to repent. And so I think the what we see here is, is something that is one, on the surface, at least, uh, objectively immoral and unjust. Um, and two, uh, just a, somewhat of a contradiction to say that God can um, hold somebody responsible for that. And so, again, the three responses that I've at least encountered would be an appeal to mystery. We just don't know, which I think is the most honest. I don't know what other direction you could really go. And then there's the, um, you just, this isn't Calvinism. Like, this isn't you're, you're, you're misrepresenting what Calvinism actually teaches. Um, and then the third one, which just completely left my mind, but, but, uh, I think those, those would be, you know, it, it just seems like, as you said, there isn't really a great response other than an yeah, appeal the third, to the third one, maybe you just, you're not, you're not willing to uh, submit yourself to the word of God. That's or right. To, That's you're too emotional. Who are you, you old know, man? Yeah. You're too emotional and you just can't accept yeah. those kinds of responses, but it, it's almost yeah. as if, you know, on Calvinism, it's like it's everybody's born a worm or a caterpillar. And the 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 mass of humanity is like the worm and the elect are like caterpillars. And the 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 the, the only way to be saved is to fly. You got to you got to you got to be able to fly. And all the the elect caterpillars, of course, will be metamorphosed and, you know, changed mm -hmm. miraculously into butterflies, whereas all the worms just stay in the ground as worms. And that's just who they are by nature. And and I'm going to and I'm going to hold the, the worms blameworthy while asking them to, to become butterflies, calling yeah. them to become butterflies, weeping over them for not becoming butterflies um, and, and expressing all this angst when they don't do what I ask them to do, even though by nature they can't do what I'm asking them to do and all these kinds of things. But I'm going to save the butterflies because they fly because I created them to be able to be butterflies and I created the worms not to ever be able to be butterflies. It, I mean, it, it, it seems to reduce 
the the way the world works into that kind of mindset and it, it just yeah. it removes in our estimation it removes all meaningful sense of human culpability and it casts shade upon the well-intending offers of the gospel uh, the character of god because it makes god seem somewhat duplicitous to say he wants one thing while sovereignly decreeing the opposite and and these kinds of these kinds of concepts that are introduced by calvinism and so the reason we're standing against it is not you know free will is not the central you know motivating factor of our systematic no. uh, it's really human responsibility uh, in the sense of why are people held accountable for not believing in jesus why are why is god good and just and right how do we know he's good and just and right uh, does he love the way the Bible says God is love? What is love? First Corinthians chapter 13 defines it for us. What does God look like that? If, God, if the Bible is the standard for what how we define words and God is described as love, then shouldn't he look like what is described yeah. there in that chapter? Um, yeah. And it gives so many clear qualifications of what love looks like. Um, and, and when you really begin to unpack that uh, with regard to what God does to the mass of humanity called reprobates on Calvinism, um, how do you call that love by any standard of, of the word love? Um, and, and that's why we push back on these things, because we do believe it impugns the character of God, even if unintentionally. Yeah, uh, it would seem like, you know, Paul calls us to be imitators of God as beloved children, you know, multiple times he'll, he'll say, give some sort of exhortation like that. And Jesus will as well, uh, giving this idea that we as his children are to imitate God, imitate God's character, imitate God's behavior, imitate the way God responds to sinners uh, and the wicked. You do likewise, so you can be a child of God. And I feel um, that if if Calvinism is true, the things you're, you're, you're talking about here, it renders to me concepts like love and goodness completely beyond our comprehension. Like we we really are left not able to know what, what does love even look like? Because if love can look like God simply selecting for mysterious reasons, some people to, you know, millions of people to create really for the ultimate purpose of subjecting them to a unimaginable uh, fate for his glory. Uh, if, if love can look like that, you know, uh, then I don't I don't really think we know or can even begin to know what love really is. What is goodness? Well, goodness could look like three of my kids go and play in the mud when they weren't supposed to, and they come inside and I say, hey, you know, Jonah, the oldest, you're going to come with me. We're going to spend the rest of the day together. I forgive you. Let's clean up. We're going to watch a movie. We're going to have snacks. The rest of you, I'm going to put you in a cage until next January. And, and I hope that shows you, you know, Jonah, uh, I hope that helps you, you know, exalt how kind I am to you. You'll be thankful that I was nice to you and and, and not to your brothers. Um, it, it, it would present, and maybe that's a bit of a crude and, and crass <laughs> analogy. I, I know it, but I think it, I think it's accurate. I think it's an honest way to say, hey, if God, it kind of looks like that. It kind of looks like how God deals with humanity and all that to say, I just think I'd, I wouldn't know how to accurately define things like love or goodness, if that yeah. was true. Well, and C.S. Lewis is always so well known for putting things in such concise and very articulate ways. And he, the way he uh, addresses this very point we're talking about is he he wrote this. He said, "If God's moral judgment differs from ours, so that our black may be his white, we can mean nothing by calling him good. 
for to say God is good while asserting that his goodness is wholly other than ours is really only to say God is we know not what. And an un, utterly unknown quality in God cannot give us moral grounds for loving or obeying him. If he is not in our sense good, we shall obey, if at all, only through fear and should be equally ready to obey an, an all-powerful demon. Uh, actually, omnipotent fiend, which means all-powerful demon. He said, the doctrine of total depravity, where the consequence is drawn that, since we are totally depraved, our idea of good is worth simply nothing, may thus turn Christianity into a form of devil worship. Um, and, and I think that that quote from Lewis really summarizes um, just this, this concept and idea that if God's the type of God that would do what Calvinism is positing, that basically decree for everybody to be born unable to believe, unable to desire to believe the gospel, unless they're unilaterally and irresistibly changed to be made to do so through a, an effectual work of grace, um, then if, if, if that's what God is doing, then how do you call that good by any intuitive measure of goodness or rightness or justice? Um, and and if you're willing to say that that's love, because some Calvinists like John MacArthur actually disagree with A.W. Pink and say God does love all people, uh, while while as Pink is a lot more consistent within his Calvinism, and he says no, God doesn't love all people. He hates he hates the reprobate. Whereas MacArthur sees the implications of that, he sees the problems with that, and he actually says no, no, we have to maintain that God loves everybody because Jesus, in order to fulfill the demands of the law, MacArthur ar argues had to love his enemies. And if you say that Jesus didn't love his enemies, then he would not be qualified to be the fulfillment of the law. And you can't say that God loves his enemies less than Jesus because of the triune nature of who God is. You can't, you can't separate them in that way. And so MacArthur actually makes a really good argument for the universal love of God for all people. Now, as a Calvinist, how he deals with that is by ultimately redefining love to look a lot like hate, where you you have God ultimately treating the reprobates in such a way as to give them rain and sunshine, which he calls, but you know, a, a form of love, but it's just not salvific love. And and when and this is why I think David Hunt wrote his book, you know, aptly named "What Love Is This?" I mean, it it's it's yep. a it's if we're calling his black white. And his white black, it, it, it looks, if that's love, then I don't want to see hate because that, that is, are you, are you, I mean, think about the definition of love that we have from first Corinthians 13. And he even, he even uses the qualification. If, if you give all your riches to the poor, but have not love, in other words, what's he separating out? Just because you bring rain and sunshine, just because you bring benevolent gifts to somebody is not equal to love. And then he defines what love is. Patient? Is God patient with reprobates who he created unable to want to believe in him and yet judges them for eternity and health for something they have absolutely no control over? Is that kindness? Is that patience? Is that it does not seek its own? What are Calvinists known for, for promoting over and over and over again about God? Seeking his own, looking after himself, look searching for his own glory. This this is the opposite of love, according to the biblical definition of the word. Not the provisionist yeah. definition of the word, the biblical definition of the word. The, the Bible yeah. is our standard for what love is and how it's defined. And the Bible calls God love. And therefore, to, to, to redefine love to look exactly like what I would imagine hate to look like 
and then just expect mm-hmm. everybody to go, okay, we agree. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm sorry. If you redefine the word love to, to ultimately mean hate, I'm going to call you out on it. I'm going to have to say, brothers, you, you've misstepped here. You at least be the consistent kind of Calvinist that A.W. Pink is and just come right out and call it hate because that's what you're describing when, with regard to what God does to the reprobates on the Calvinistic system. Yeah. And, and I think going back a little bit to, to say that God, you know, is in pursuit of his own glory is not something that I think either of us would disagree with. Of course, God wants to bring glory to himself. I think the, the distinction would be that I don't see the Bible presenting this idea that God's, you know, primary way of, of getting glory for himself is by displaying how powerful he is to do whatever he wants. Of course he can. But I think God's glory is most fully revealed and seen when when it's shown what it is that God actually wants in his power to make that happen, which is what? It's 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 blessing to all the nations. It's it's you know salvation for the world. It's God's unconditional love for every person. And so, so just to, cause I could see somebody running with that saying, oh, so you don't think God is in pursuit of his own glory? No, not at all. It's just that God's pursuit of his own glory, I think looks much different than what, what the Calvinists would propose that it looks like. I don't I think, think God's even, pr- primary- I think even, even our Calvinistic friends would confess, hopefully, that the mm-hmm. most glorifying display of God was on the cross through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what does that display? It displays sacrificial, self-sacrificial love for one's enemies. It doesn't, it doesn't display his control over his enemies. It displays his love, self-sacrificial love for his enemies. That glorifies God. So what brings glory to God? God's maximally glorious. We, we can't make God any more glorious than he already is, okay? He, he is already maximally glorious. So what does it mean to glorify God? It means to reveal him for who he is. That's what glorifying God means. So the best way we can glorify God is by telling people who he really is and getting it right. right. That's how you bring glory to God. You're stealing glory from God if you describe God in a way that's not true. In other words, you you say something about God that's not right. Then you're you're quote unquote, stealing glory from him. Because he's not, it's not like his glory is going up and down and the measuring go, oh, he's more glory. Oh, now, now he's less glory. He's maxima glorious all the time. Our job is to reveal him for who he is. So when we're talking about God and we're describing his attributes and we're describing who his character is and we get it wrong, then we're taking away God's glory. And what we're trying to do as provisionists is to say God is glorified most, not by the sacrifice of most of humanity for the sake of his glory. No, he's most glorified by the sacrifice of himself for the sake of undeserving humanity. That's what brings him to glory. The first shall be last. It's the servant that's actually glorified. It's the, it's the baby born in a manger that's actually glorified. It's, it's the weak that's actually glorified. And so, in other words, to glorify God is to reveal him for who he really is, a self-sacrificially loving father who actually lays down his life for the sins of the world and 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 comes in a manger and and gives up his quote unquote uh, mansions and glory and the the high mighty control power stuff he gives that up in the sense of yeah. uh, taking on the 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 role of a servant and laying down his life that's what glorifies god the most 
And so, yeah, you're right. We're not we're not trying to say that God's not not bringing himself glory. But how is he bringing himself glory by revealing himself for who he really is? And that is mm -hmm. best manifest in the person of Jesus Christ. Yeah. And so we're very Christocentric as provisionists centered on the man Christ Jesus, the God man Christ Jesus. That is our, our basis of our entire soteriology. And it's based upon a God who self-sacrificially loves all of his enemies, yeah. not just a few select ones that he picked before they were ever born. Okay, He loves all of his enemies. He lays down his life for all of his enemies so that any of his enemies can be reconciled through faith in him. So really yeah. that simple. Yeah, yeah, that's so... A response again would be, you know, that possibly we're being emotional. We're just not accepting the cold hard facts of the Bible. And first, I just say that I hope my it truly is my desire anytime I talk about Calvinism to do it in a loving way, to not be condescending, to not come across as just like a Calvinist basher, but to show, which I think you do a really good job of, Leighton, and always have, of just you're not coming from an angry, resentful place, but but just you're respectfully saying, hey, I simply disagree with this. I'm not yeah. coming out of any other motivation than that I biblically disagree. And so I hope in everything that's being said here, because I know that this, what we're presenting, could very easily be taken as, oh, well, you're just being an emotional or you're just not able to accept the cold hard facts of the Bible. And it's not, yeah. it's not that. I, I give Calvinists the benefit of the doubt, and I assume when I'm talking to them, they believe what they believe, not for some kind of nefarious, ill-intended motives, but I think they believe it because that's what they think the Bible teaches. Sure. I think they honestly think that's what the Bible teaches. And so I would hope that those on the other side would give that same you know benefit of doubt to us that what we're saying is a legitimate thing we're bringing to the table and saying we we're open to hearing legitimate meaningful responses to this um but i think hebrews 6 always comes to mind when i think about this because i think there's some sort of biblical precedence at least here to this idea of looking at uh, uh, behaviors that, you know, Calvinism would say God, uh, you know, acts in and to say, hey, that that doesn't look immoral. So Hebrews 6, 10, it says, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name and serving the saints. So it's, it's as if the writer of Hebrews is looking at a possible scenario, like if God did overlook the work you've done, that would be unjust. It's as if he thought that in being in the image of God, having the moral law written on his heart, he can make a moral evaluation about certain behaviors and say, hey, if God did this, if God overlooked your work of and labor of love, God would be unjust. He's He seems comfortable with saying that. And I think in the same way, we're saying, hey, if God did this, if God did what Calvinism said he does, from our perspective, that that would be unjust. Thank you for listening to the Great Light Studios podcast. To find more information and resources or to watch our films, you can find links in the show notes of this episode to our Facebook, YouTube, and other social media accounts.